If you would, take your Bible and join me in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And again, if you are a first-time guest here, we are so thankful that you are here with us. There's a gift bag in the lobby for you, uh, but there's also a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is also our gift to you. The greatest thing that we can give is the Word of God. And now here we seek to make it plain. First John chapter 3, we will be in the same text that our brother Grady read for us this morning, verses 19 through 23. We've been in this particular section for uh, two weeks. This is the third week now. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw that the foundation that we have for loving one another in the body of Christ is that we have been taken from death to life, that we are of God, that we have eternal life within us. These are the only grounds that we should ever look to in the reasoning why we love one another in the body of Christ. There's no excuse for not loving one another because we have no ground to love one another when we look at the biblical record of our foundation of love in the body of Christ. Love often, though, does go wrong when we try to build Christian love on other things. Uh, when we seek to build the love in the body on preferences, it tends to crumble. When we build love inside of the body on performance, it tends to become exhausted. But here we have, in verses 11 through 15, the ground for our love one to another, that we are in Christ only by grace. And last week, we further considered that we aren't called here to necessarily like everything about each other. Glory be to God. But that, in fact, true love looks past the things that we dislike in others. It looks past the obstacles that seek to cause hurdles to genuine love. And it moves us beyond merely the theoretical lip service and commends us to actually love in action, in deed, in faithfulness. There is this, as I was sitting here this morning, it dawned on me, and slow learner. And part of what John is doing here and in saying, look, don't just love in, in thought, in uh, theory, but love in action, is he is pushing again in this part of the church's life against the Gnostic heresy uh, that you know, the spiritual things are good and the material things are bad. And, and what he's saying here is, no, in fact, the way the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will genuinely manifest its love one for another is in material actions and in, in the way that we, we serve one another in, in deed and in faithfulness. So here this week, we carry on. John is not finished with the subject. Um, in fact, he presses in further that the, there is this fundamental truth that we must truly love one another in the body of Christ. This is a far cry from most versions of the individualistic, consumer-driven type of Christianity that is peddled in our generation. The kind of Christianity that says, I can have my Jesus, but I don't need the church. If you believe in that kind of Christianity, then you don't believe that 1 John chapter 3 is inspired of God at all. Because here we can't live out our true relationship to Christ at all without the church. We would fail in our Christian walk were it not for 
the church that God has placed us in. And it's a messy business, isn't it? It's easy to think about and to theorize about loving other people well, but when you come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning in West Texas of all places, with all of our attitudes and dispositions and likes and dislikes, and you try to do the actual work of loving one another, it's a, it's a difficult thing. But here, he says, is one of the most important realities of claiming to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he actually says this is the litmus test by which we know that we are of the truth. This is the way that we know that we belong to Him. Loving of the body of Christ is how we know that we have laid a hold of the promises that we've already talked about in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. As John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. There's a way of thinking about these verses merely intellectually, theoretically. That we are children of God. And wow, what grand thoughts. What John seeks to do as he moves through this chapter is to get us to anchor those grand realities and pair them with how we are living our lives. And a wonderful reality that we do find in this text, that we are called children of God, that we are not God's children at some point when we straighten up and fly right, but we are God's children now. There is in this text an entire sermon to be preached that I haven't. Uh, on the beatific vision. Now you have to be careful with that term. If you go Google it, theological terms are messy things. If you go Google a theological term, you're liable to get Wikipedia, uh, an amalgamation of every theological vantage point, blended into one that makes no sense at all. So be careful with this term. But really what we mean by beatific vision is who we will be when we are finally glorified in the presence of Christ. And in verses 1 and 2, we are told we're not there yet. We haven't reached perfection. We don't love perfectly. And we don't even really have... None of us could stand up this morning and say, this is what that will be like. That hasn't been revealed to us. But what we do know about that vision, about that ultimate outworking of our sanctification, is that when we are there, we will be like Him. What a joy that is. The test of the hope of the beatific vision can be seen in how we love the body of Christ in the here and now. Part of what John is doing is he's saying we aren't what we one day will be. But there are aspects of what we will be one day that should be active in the here and now in how we love one another in the body of Christ you should be able to see the first glimmers of what that vision is inside the body of Christ today that's what we aim at this morning when we read if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's word as we begin in verse 19 being reminded that John here is not writing out of his own intellect or skill or ability, but under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. And he writes, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before Him. 
For whenever our heart condemns us, greater God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. This is God's Word to you and I. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning thankful for all that you have done for us. Thankful that you have taken us from darkness to light, from death to life. That you have set your love upon us and drawn us by the work of your Spirit. That you have caused us to believe and to worship and to lay our lives down. Father, would you this morning inscribe these truths on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. And we must begin in our understanding of this passage by noticing where the Christian is placed in the context of this passage. What is the place, the activity that is being examined here in light of our loving the body of Christ? Where is it that John is envisioning we as Christians are found in verses 19 through 23, that there is a place that our relationship will be examined more than any other, in any other area of our life, any other arena of our life, in any other activity, it is most examined, it is most inspected in that particular time we call prayer. We know that we can't do anything in the Christian life Certainly not love the body of Christ well without praying. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, as he begins to tell the parable of the persistent widow, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Some of your translations will say that we ought always to pray that we may not faint. If we are not going to faint, if we are really going to live the Christian life, if we're really going to love the body of Christ well, we must be people of persistent prayer. If we are going to see our generation brought from death to life, if we are to see revival in our own age, it must be that we are praying people in that direction. Why? Because we are most dependent upon Him for everything in our lives. We must not depend on anything in our walk as an ultimate source of our living out the Christian life but God alone. Others will fail us. Denominations will vanish. Families fade. But God endures. It's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 27, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. It is God alone in those times of prayer that is our source. I was talking to my wife earlier this week just about how her day was, and she made the comment, I wouldn't make it through the day if it were not for the joy of being able to go to the Lord in prayer. My children should be thankful for prayer. Because their day would be awful if their mama was not able to take the burdens of being a mother to five wild children before the Lord. And is He alone who sustains us in the particular calling and walk that we have. 
As you walk throughout the pages of Scripture, you will find this to be a reality. You will find the reality that people who seek to live the faithful life are people of prayer. You'll find this in the reality of of the narrative of Moses seeking to lead the nation of Israel. For the apostles as they seek to establish the early church. For David as he seeks to lead as king in a political sphere and in his own household. If we look throughout church history and we look to the giants that God has used to stir entire continents, some of them many continents at once, for the cause of Christ, you will find that those people were people immersed in prayer. And if we draw near to Christ in the text, we find that Jesus Himself was one who went to the Father repeatedly in prayer. Remember, He prayed in the garden, Father, not my will but yours be done. So the reality we face in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-23 through 23 is that we ought always to pray that we would not lose heart. So the question that we have to ask in light of that is what is prayer? What, are we, what is it that we are doing when we pray? Uh, are we performing for others? Is it just merely a mechanical ritual? It's not what we find in the Bible. It's not what we find in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We don't just find prayer to be standing before people. In fact, most prayer is done privately, though there is a place for public prayer. But it's not just spouting off words mechanically. It's not just being flowery in your language. An individual, and if you pray In a particular way, I'm not picking on you this morning. I'm not judging anybody's prayer life. Only the Spirit of God should convict you of that. But I had a friend in college who prayed the same prayer almost every time. And he prayed that particular prayer in King James English. Never would talk that way. But when he talked to God, it was very flowery. And I always thought, man, that's so odd. Prayer's not about heaping up flowery phrases. Prayer's not about stirring up feelings. In the modern church, there's so many public prayers that I don't even think aim at the throne of God. They aim at the church pew merely to emotionally stir. But that's not prayer. Prayer is is not about getting things for ourselves in an earthly sense primarily. It's not just about going to God with our wish list. Although we should take every request and petition before the throne, it's not about getting our way. Prayer, as it turns out in a biblical context, is not just a little talk with Jesus. It's something more profound than that. So what is it? Well, friends, it's found in two words here. And it couldn't be put better than how John puts it. And it couldn't be put better. uh, The answer to what is prayer couldn't be answered more succinctly because God himself has inspired these words. And the two words I want to draw your attention to in verse 19 are these. Before him. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. This phrase is used in Revelation chapter 4 to denote being before the throne of Christ. Now there is a sense in which we are always in every aspect of our lives before Him. God is always present. He's always watching. I heard an individual one time mock 
uh, invocation in gatherings of Christians because after all, God's always here. We don't need to pray an invocation. All that gentleman did was reveal a foolish theology of prayer that he had. That we wouldn't at special times and in special circumstances ask for God's special presence. In fact, every time that we pray, in a sense, it is this particular, although we know that God is omnipresent and although we know that God sees everything and hears everything, prayer is this special reality of having an audience before the King. Of going before Him. Prayer is that time when we turn our backs on everything but God. For time being, that we go to God for a unique and mysterious presence before Him. See, we need to realize with all what it really means to pray. Now, maybe you have that succinctly in your mind. Maybe you hold that in the right tension. But I'll tell you this morning, as your pastor, that far too often I take prayer without the seriousness and the awe that I should have for it. Because I'm going before Him in the presence of the divine Creator of all that is. In the presence of the One who has redeemed me from my sin. Do you remember the narrative of Esther? Haman has made this law that everyone must bow before the king. Mordecai refuses. He's condemned to die. Do you remember Esther's response? She she knows that the, the particular penalty for going before the king in his royal courts during this particular day and age was the possibility of death. If you just barged into the king's court unannounced without him summoning you in that in before him for whatever purpose, you would more than likely be put to death. And you, do you remember her response in knowing that that was a reality? She said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going anyway. Now, I, I can remember first reading through that narrative and thinking, gosh, boy, those kings were pretty harsh. I mean, somebody just bust into a room and you're going to kill them? But friends, when we pair that, the the weightiness, and I do think that that's overkill in a human sense to this day, but when we pair that narrative with Isaiah chapter 6 and and God's holiness being displayed to His prophet and Isaiah saying, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and we We think about Moses there on the mountain and God pushing him into the cleft of the rock and telling him, if I were to display all of my glory to you, you would die. We begin to catch glimpses all throughout those passages of the weight and the awe and the glory of God of what it is to go before Him in prayer. That we who are sinful can bow before God and call upon His name and take every one of our petitions before Him. Friends, it is no small matter. I know that the weight of prayer eludes me because often when I go to pray, my mind is preoccupied with worldly thoughts. The thoughts intrude about this thing or that thing. Thoughts that have to do with nothing consequential at all. And we must learn to be people who dismiss those thoughts 
And the only way that we learn to be people who dismiss fleeting thoughts like that is that we must come to marvel that in prayer we are really, in a mysterious sense, before Him. That is what prayer is. That is the principle. That is the undergirding foundation of this verse. That, that John is putting us as Christians in the context of being prayerful people who genuinely know that there are times throughout our day when we are before the throne of Almighty God. So this is the principle here. Our, our sins, the, the way that we live life with each other, then we have to realize will sooner or later catch up with us. We're told be careful, beware, your sins will find you out. And I think sometimes we think that that's a day far from now. I think part of what John is teaching us here is that every time you pray, if you're really praying in the Spirit of God, dependent upon God, your sins will find you out there. Because you will realize that He is holy, that you are not. Your heart will condemn you. See, if this letter is about our joy, and it, is, and it is, if this letter is about our fellowship, and it is, then what is taught here is that the way we live with our brothers and sisters, the way that we serve them or that we ignore them in their need will become either a source of assurance or a hindrance when we come before Him. Our fellowship with God, our joy in Him is impacted by our love that we express in truth and faithfulness towards the body of Christ. All of our lives pile up as we bend our knee before the throne of God. If we really pray in the fashion that we ought to pray in the biblical sense, as we bow before God, all of how we have lived our lives will meet us there. So if this is the concern of the text, and it is, our prayer is coming before Him, and the reality in coming before Him, our deeds follow us, and our conscience will convict us, we need to consider the conditions of prayer that are taught in this passage. And the first condition is that of freedom from condemnation. Look at verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, if we are to have a true spirit of prayer, we must come without a choking out of our prayer by the condemnation of our own heart. Again, prayer is a great test of our lives. We, we can be critiqued by others in our conversations. We can have, we can have uh, uh, discussions privately. We can, we, we can reason publicly. We can preach great sermons. And we can be in some sense examined there. But the greatest test of all of our Christian living comes as we bow our knee before the Father. Prayer causes us to pull back all of the bluster and all of the excuses and all of the nonsense and all of the, you know, the, the Christianese that we wear on the outside, the, the, the hypocrisy and the, the fake that we, we can't have that in prayer. Because if we really are genuinely going before God, we know that God knows who we really are. 
And it is there we are tested most. Prayer is an expression that we are no longer in control. That's why we kneel. Hear people all the time say it doesn't matter what position your body is in when you pray. And it's not ultimate. Prayer is a posture of the heart and that is true. But friends, one of the things that follows is that when we genuinely come before God in our private prayer time, and we don't always necessarily have to bow down, but many times we will take a position one way or another, whether it's kneeling or bowing our head, a position, a posture of submission. Why? Why don't we do that when we come to each other? Why don't we walk up to each other and just crouch down like that? Because we're in control the rest of the time. Again, as we're, as we're discussing things, as we're thinking about things, we are in control. But the second that we genuinely go, go before Him, we know we're no longer in control. We know that He is God and we are not. Have you not experienced that in your own life? When you pray, when you close yourself into your private time of prayer and you begin making requests to God, I believe that you experience what John is, I have, what John is writing about here. You begin to ask God for things. You, you begin to lift your, raise your petitions before Him. You, you, you begin to, to, to do the work of prayer and all of a sudden something happens. Your heart condemns you. You realize who you really are. You realize that you fall far short of God's holiness. The holiness that He requires. You, you reason within your own mind because of your conscience, your heart convicting you that you are a wretch, you are a beggar. Your conscience convicts you. You realize that compared to the saints of old, compared to others who have walked the Christian life, you have so much that you need to grow in. If you go before the throne humbly, that's what happens. So if that's what John is writing about here, that our hearts condemn us in times of prayer, and I believe that that is what he's saying, as we go before him, our hearts will inevitably convict and condemn us because we are sinful people. If we are in tune with his spirit, if we really have a vision of who God is, that he is holy, and we are not, our hearts will condemn us. We will struggle at times. So the way we interpret the next several words in verse 20 are very significant. And there's a great debate about what the next portion of that verse means. As John continues, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. He's saying, when you come before Him, when you are in prayer, you come before Him and your heart condemns you. Your heart raises before you all of the things that you are, all of the things that you have done, how you have not loved. Friends, as you've prayed through this text, I don't think there's a way to make it through John's words without coming to a point of conviction that, man, I need to grow in the way that I love, not only in thought and in um, spirit, but also in, in, in action, in deed. I, I need to love the body of Christ better. Well, the answer here, in this next phrase, is God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Now, here are the two main, and I'm not going to get into all of the historical theology here, but here are the two main views about what this text means. First, there are those who would argue that this is a text, a verse of great comfort. 
When you are in the presence of God, and when your heart condemns you, God is greater. He knows and He remembers His mercy. He remembers His compassion for you. God has forgiven you. Go ahead, pray boldly. You don't need to think about the condemnation of your own heart. That is one view. It's not the view that I take, but it is a view. The other view is that this is a verse of great exhortation. It's a view that says this is a verse that should cause us to examine and consider our own lives. It's a verse that says if our own heart, a heart that is still beset with indwelling sin, condemns us, remember God is greater and He knows all things. It's a verse that says, look, when you go before the throne of grace, when you go before the holy triune God, when you go there in the presence of God and your heart condemns you, know that that is meager in comparison to what God knows about you. Because you don't know everything about the depravity that exists in your own nature. We tend to be our best PR representatives, don't we? We tend to give the best reasoning, the best answer for why we behave the way that we do. God knows better. I don't know all things, but I know that I am, I know that I am unholy when I am before the Lord. And this verse is saying, you don't know the half of the truth about yourself. This verse is saying that God sees you in a way that is complete in your inmost parts. He knows all of your passing thoughts of contempt, all of the the meditations of unkindness that are in your heart. God knows all of those things. I believe that to be true. I also believe it to be a proof of what we talked about last week, that genuine love doesn't set itself upon us. God's love is not conditioned upon us. It couldn't be because God knows who we really are. God doesn't believe the preachers that say man is inherently good and give him enough time, he'll come to Jesus in his own will. God knows that without the regenerating power of the Spirit of God, there will be no change. And yet, he has loved us with an everlasting love. What a joy that is. What he's saying here is if my own heart condemns me, what, God, what must God see? Now we're not going to end the debate today, but I will tell you this, this verse can't be a verse of comfort. Because it doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the context. This is a red hot passage. This is a passage that ushers us into thinking about what we're really doing in prayer, that we are before Him. And it's meant to be a passage warning us. It's meant to be a red flag. It's meant to stand before us and, and, and tell us, look, if you, and this was originally to the Gnostics, if you claim to love the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and you love all of the theology and you have all of the answers and you have all of the doctrine, but you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a liar. And so to take this, this is great comfort. It's just an appeal back to the cross. Well, I can promise you it would have been no loving appeal to the Gnostics because they would have abused this text. And that there's always the danger of that reality in our life. If this is a verse 
just declaring that God loves me and so I can relate to the body however I want and it doesn't matter, then it is to land this entire passage and hand it over to the antinomians, those who say the law is of no effect and we don't need to worry about what God commands in our lives. We have been saved by grace, so oh well. That's not what this passage teaches. And here is the proof. Look at verse 19, the first words. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Consequentially, this is also by the, the litmus test by which we will know that we are not of the truth. Or think about what is written in Matthew chapter 5. So if, you're, if, if you are offering your gift, Jesus speaking here, at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There is an exhortation there. The way that you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ is preeminent even above your giving. What silences the condemnation of my heart is not... In this context, an argument appealing to the grace of God. Although we'll get to that. That is the ultimate foundation. But what John is saying here is that one of the tests outwardly of your Christian life is not just merely to point to the grace of God, although that's the foundation. What John points to here is the love that you have one for another. And not a kind of love that is just word and talk, but truth and faithfulness in action. So how does this look? How does this work? What is John painting a picture of? And what is he envisioning here? He's saying that you're before the Lord and your heart is condemning you. You are racked with guilt. You admit, I am a sinner. Woe is me. I am undone. I am grieved over my sin. And in that moment, there will be one thing that you can hang your hat upon. That you can find to do away with, to give you freedom from condemnation. And that thing is that you remember, you know that you have shown love to the body of Christ in actions. You, you can look at your suffering brother and you can't just pass by him. You know that there has to be something that you do. You remember in your mind there was this time, and maybe you don't remember it because your conversion, you were so young, but for several who are in this room who come to Christ at a later, later time, there was a time when you really didn't care about the church. There was no love that you had for the body of Christ. But now, as you go before the throne of grace and your heart condemns you, you are reminded my heart has changed towards this body. My sins are ever before me. I am a sinful individual. The, 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 the condemnation that is rising up from your heart, the accusations are very well true because your conscience does generally, not always, keep an accurate record. And there in that moment, the gift to you, the, the, the litmus test that you are of God, that you have been taken from death to life, is that you are no longer an individual doesn't love the body. You are no longer an individual who just gives lip service to love, but you're an individual who actually uses your life for the service of the body of Christ. John's been very deliberate to put the argument in the way that he has. 
I hope this argument does away in our minds with this silly kind of Christianity that says, well, I can love Jesus and I don't need the church. Because the first time you go before Jesus and your heart's condemn, heart condemns you, the, 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 the mode of assuring your heart and doing away with the condemnation is lost if you don't love the church, if you don't love the body of Christ. There's no real assurance in the kind of living that lives apart from the body of Christ. John knows also, and I've mentioned this, not to point to the cross in his argument because he knows that we are sinful. And he knows that we will abuse this glorious gift of God's love to continue in our sins, not loving the brothers in the body well. He's pointing that it is, in fact, loving the body that brings us assurance. John John knows that there is a terrible danger for each of us that we would intellectually agree with even the commandment to love one another, but fail to walk in it. And so this test is a clear, concise, and yet red-hot test. By this we know that we are of the truth. This is the first condition that we have to consider when we consider coming before God in prayer. The second, to pray well before Him, is that we must have confidence before him. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. The first condition that we are free from condemnation, and that condemnation is shut off as we remember that God has birthed us anew into the kingdom and that we actually now love the church. It's really all God's doing, but we see the fruit in our lives, and that is what will do away with the condemnation as we come before the throne. But here, we also come positively, not just in the negative sense of not having condemnation, but now in the positive sense of having confidence before Him. Scripture tells us that we are to have confidence in prayer. Many of your translations, as I read these passages, you're going to remember the word boldness being used in these passages. Both words will do. Hebrews chapter 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 19 of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 22 of that same chapter, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water. Ephesians chapter 3. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. One of the conditions of prayer is that we go boldly before the throne of grace. And so if we are to pray in true joy and fellowship with God, we must go boldly. And then we have to ask this question. Well, where does that boldness, where does that confidence come from? Is it a confidence that is rooted in the fact that you love the church perfectly? We've done away with our condemnation because we actually have, in some sense or another, some form, genuine love towards the body. Now as we go confidently, do we go before God and say, Jesus, I love your church really well. No. 
It can't be what he's talking about here. It is that I've been made a part. What he's talking about, the confidence, the root, the ground, the writer of Hebrews points to it. It is the blood of Jesus. It is the grace of God. It is this reality that I have been made a child of God. With all of my failures, with all of my flaws, with everything that is unsatisfactory within me, I know this to be true. I am born of God. I am confident of that reality. I have this love for the body that stands as proof. So no, not only do I put away the condemnation of my own heart, but I also go confidently before Him knowing that my salvation is a work that He alone could do. It works like this. If I'm truly loving the brethren, if I'm truly loving the church, then I remember that I'm a child of God. Therefore, when I am before God in prayer... I maintain this reality. I must think of God no longer as my judge, but I must realize this is my Father. It's a gift of grace that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. He is no longer merely our judge. He is our Father. We have been made children of God. We are called children of God, as John says. And John goes on to remind us Uh, of this reality in the remainder of his letter in in, uh, verse 18 of chapter 4. Fear hath torment, but uh, perfect love casts out fear. He, He says we don't go with this servile sense of fear before the throne of grace. We go confidently. And the only reason that we can go confidently is because we are sons and daughters of the living God. He makes an appeal back to the reality that John has already pointed to. So we go before the throne of grace, doing away with the condemnation that is in us because we are aware that we genuinely love the body. But as we go with confidence, we realize the only confidence, the only ground we actually have is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the love that we have for the body that gives us confidence. It's the love that he's had for us. I am his child now. I'm confident of this reality. The the basis of your love for the church is your confidence that you are loved in him. I've heard people accuse this church as they've decided to place their membership somewhere else and that's okay. This is just not a loving church. Those people don't love me well. They should have done this and this and this and this and this. Maybe you're the one friend that has a problem with love. Of course this body doesn't love us perfectly. But we don't need that. Because we've already been loved perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So now we're free inside the body to confidently love others. Not out of how we are loved. But out of how we have been loved in Christ. So if we're going to go before the throne of grace, if we're going to be before Him, we have to do away with the condemnation. That only comes by being reminded that we genuinely love the body in some form or fashion. But that love only sprung forth in our confidence that we have been loved. There is a third condition. One, we are freed from condemnation. Now we have confidence. But finally, we must be assured that our prayer will actually be met. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. 
Again, this is a statement saying when you go before the throne of grace, you must go with expectation that God is actually going to deliver on the prayer that you pray. John, or excuse me, James wrote in this fashion, James chapter 1, If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given uh, generously, uh, sorry, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person has not supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. What is being taught here is that when we go before the Lord, we must not go with doubts. We must go expectantly being assured that God is going to answer our prayer. We don't go before Him with the condemnation of our hearts weighing us down. We go with the confidence that God has saved us. And we go expecting that He will answer. Jesus spoke of the same reality in John chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15 verses 16 and 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I have commanded you so that you will love one another. John says it this way, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. So the question we ask on the heels of this, knowing that we are to go putting aside the condemnation of our heart because we genuinely love the body, standing on the firm foundation of grace alone, and being assured that he will answer our prayer, we have to ask this question, does that mean when we go in those conditions that the Christian gets whatever he wants. That the Christian can go pray for a brand new Mustang. And he's going to get it. Or that, that we can pray and our family will work out just as we envision and want it to. And the answer to that is no. And you know why? Because what God gives us is far better than any material thing of this earth. It's not that I pray for what I want. It's more glorious than that. What this means is that I can have assurance that my prayers will be answered if I live according to Christ's command to love the body. Then I know. If I I come before Him knowing I've loved the body, then I know that my life is being regulated by the Spirit because the Bible tells us that without the grace of God, without the working of the Spirit of God, we would not love one another, but there would be enmity and strife between us. But because we do see love there, we know then that God is at work and His Spirit is regulating our lives. And if our lives are regulated by the Spirit, then there must be this other truth. God's Spirit is also regulating my prayer. The things that I'm praying for are not merely things that I can just use for my own fleshly gratification. My prayers are rooted first and primarily in this reality that I want to see the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. And if my prayers are according to the will of God, as my life is increasingly according to the will of God, then I can come without condemnation. I can come with full confidence and assurance that He will bring to completion the good work that He has begun in me. By this we know love 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives one for another. We can pray that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would in increasing fashion have wisdom to know how to actually love the body of Christ well in the way that Jesus loved the body well. Friends, I can remember, I'm going to share this with you briefly, and I may have shared this with some of you before, I may have shared it publicly before, but I can remember the first day of my undergraduate program at Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri in the year 2006. And our lead faculty of the pastoral department walking into the room, the first thing that he said was, all of you party animals go down the hall. He was talking to the youth pastors, the youth majors. We're serious people in here. The men can stay, youth majors go down the hall. I was a youth major. He didn't know that. I stayed. The next thing that he said was this. If you don't love people, get out. Because God cannot use you if you don't have love for people. And what I can tell you this, I can tell you this with all certainty at that moment in my life. I had a love for people. And I did have a love for the church. But it's not the love that I have today. And the reason that it's not the love that I have today is because I didn't know Jesus to the extent that I know him today. And it's because I've grown in my Christian walk and actually, indeed, in action only by the Spirit of God knowing how to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I have such a long way to go. But, but in the moment, I really thought, man, maybe I should walk out of this room and go into a different vocation altogether because I know if there's anybody on the face of this planet that can't be used of God, it has to be me. And these years later, I know that that man said those words for my encouragement. Because in that moment, I took stock of my heart towards the church. And here standing 12 years later, 15 years later, I I won't boast in anything. All I will say is glory be to God. There is genuine affection in my heart for the body of Christ. And that can only be the work of grace. See, Jesus gives us this example prior to him. Verse 16 is the pattern of how we're to love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life, and we ought to lay our own lives down for the brothers. Jesus modeled before he went to the cross what it means to pray without condemnation, confidently, and being assured that what God wants to come to pass will come to pass. So many people think that God has failed because He hasn't made this world and this life what they think it ought to be. But can I tell you this on the authority of the Word of God? He is bringing about the the completion of His plan. And His plan is not that this world would be perfect. It lies in the power of the evil one. His plan is that all of His redeemed will be gathered together with Him eternally. And they will know that they were loved eternally. And they will know for all of eternity that there is no room to boast in their love one for another because as they behold in that beatific vision the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will know that it is only because that love has come from Him. 
So he gives us this example in Mark chapter 14 before he goes to the cross of what it means to pray in the way that John is speaking. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began, uh, uh, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell down on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you see Jesus coming there? Jesus' conscience never condemned him because he was perfect. It's the one distinction between he and those of us in the body of Christ. So there is no condemnation in his heart. But here he comes with confidence. Abba, Father, you are my Father. And then he says all things are possible with you. He comes with assurance and expectation. Knowing that God's plan of redemption is going to work out. But he comes submitting his own will to God. Knowing that it is God's will. It is God's decrees. It is what God has declared will come to pass that ultimately should win out because it is that very thing that will bring Him the most glory and the church the most good. And so the question then we have to ask is this, well, what is His will for us? I mean, as we come to the end of this and we know that we're to pray without condemnation, assured of our salvation, or, or confident of our salvation, assured that God is going to ask or answer our prayer, we have to ask, well, if, if, if we're to pray according to His will, what is His will for us? Uh, John would say, I'm glad you've asked. That's why I wrote verse 23. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today. Oh, how our hearts condemn us when we stand before you rightly. When we consider who you are in light of your attributes, that you are holy, you are righteous, you are good, you are merciful, you are kind, you are loving. Father, you are all the things that we are not in our own flesh. And yet, in your kindness, you have come to us and you have opened our heart and mind to the glories of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have presented your Son that we might have eternal life. Might we rejoice in what you and you alone have done. Might we draw confidence from your work of atonement. And might that confidence not stir us to anger or to, to arrogance, but might that confidence... Give us the boldness to love one another as you have commanded us. That we, as we come before you time and time again, might lay aside the condemnation that our heart rises up in us. And might we be assured that as we come before you asking that you would use our lives as we lay them down to you, that our lives individually would be instruments of mercy and grace in the lives of other people, that we would actually have wisdom and know how to love one another well, that you will hear that prayer and you will answer. Father, might we be people that pray all throughout this week begging you for the grace to 
love the body of Christ in greater fashion? Might we never be people who are content with the status of our love towards the church that you have redeemed by your precious blood? If there's one here today that does not know you, that has yet to turn in repentant faith to you, would you do what only you can do and reveal to them the glory